We will be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, starting in verse 5 through verse 38. And I'll be reading from the ESV. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come where there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, 
but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks be to God, and thank you, Andy, for shepherding so well and living out your prayer. So thanks for you and Krista and your family. You know, I hope you've noticed just how common it is to speak about end times, that the world is full of doomsdayers. I suppose there are some who think that talking about the end of the world was just for kind of small groups of quack religious folk, and that's certainly not the case. I've been reading uh, Neil Ferguson's book, The Politics of Catastrophe. It's called Doom, uh, The Politics of Catastrophe. I'll give you a few examples. So here is Elon Musk. Civilization has been around for 7,000 years or something like that. If you counted from the first time there was any writing, any recorded symbols besides cave paintings, that's a very tiny amount of time considering the universe is 13.8 billion years old, and it's been kind of a roller coaster on the civilization front. There's a certain probability that is irreducible that something may happen to us despite our best intentions. Despite everything we try to do, there's a probability at a certain point that some either external force or some internal unforced error causes civilization to be destroyed or sufficiently impaired such that it can no longer extend to another planet. That motivation, the end of civilization, is I think part of Musk's uh, motivation to colonize Mars. Uh, so a leading kind of person of intrigue certainly talks about the end. And how about in other spheres? I think it's now uh, widely regarded, I, I take it as a settled issue, that our most recent pandemic, of which there have been many global pandemics in the history of mankind, but the most recent one certainly, uh, not caused by a small group of weird religious people, but actually caused by scientists who have uh, thought it a good idea to do gain-of-function research on animal viruses so that they might come to humans and spread more rapidly. That, again, I think it's widely uh, understood that there is continuing gain-of-function research uh, that, that's going on with uh, viruses that are far more lethal than COVID-19. And so you think about that, say, well, really, what would it take for another lab leak to wipe out uh, even larger numbers of people. Uh, others, maybe not thinking of a plague, uh, maybe something like nuclear warfare. That in our world today, you've got Kim Jong-un and the Ayatollahs of Iran and people like Vladimir Putin, who with one push of the button, you say, well, that could be very damaging. And since Oppenheimer is kind of a man of the hour with the film, you know, there's the famous story that as the atomic experiments are going on there in New Mexico, he says, when I saw it go off, I was reminded of the line from the Bhagavad Gita, the Indian holy book, about Krishna, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. That's where his mind went. Could there be a nuclear war that would take out vast amounts of people, some wonder? On yet another angle, you say, no doubt, you see people that are very worked up about climate change, 
that in its most radical form, those saying if we don't, you know, all stop breathing right now, that the world will end in the year 2030. And again, another angle, I suppose, would be the kind of data that the Red Cross has published, that these uh, numbers numerically are adjusted for inflation, but around the time I was born in 1985, the U.S., there were about three billion dollar disasters a year, three. And now in 2023, $28 billion disasters a year. Part of that is uh, no doubt just flux. Others, because we tend to want to live in places where there are hurricanes and on fault lines. The point I'm trying to make is that when you talk about the world ending, uh, may our minds not go to, again, a weird group of people who's withdrawn, kind of predicting the end of the world, but help us to notice that there's something ingrained in human beings from all sectors of society, from the Elon Musk to the war people to the plague people to the climate people to the disaster people, that it feels like, well, maybe, maybe we're not going to be here forever. And I ask you, what do you think? Is this a topic you shy away from? the end. Is there anyone who speaks authoritatively on this to say, well, this is the way it's going to go down, and this is how you can be prepared and how you can talk about it in a sensible way? Well, that's exactly what we come to today. A famous sermon, if you will, this is often dubbed the Olivet Discourse. It's an extended sermon of Jesus's where he's got him again, the disciples, we're making our way towards Easter here. He sits the fellas down, and he lays out the future, uh, both in the lifetime of the disciples and as we'll see in a kind of cosmic realm. And he says, this is how we ought to be thinking about it. This is the way that it's going to happen. And we'll see that it comes to those of us who are followers of Jesus as something to be taken seriously, but also with a great sense of joy, believe it or not. So as we look at this Olivet Discourse, what makes it such a challenging passage, what Andy so wonderfully read, is that there's kind of two streams of thought running together. One, as I said, to Jesus's immediate context, and then one, as we'll see on a much grander scale. First, the immediate context, what sets this up. The disciples, it's Passover, everybody's in town from the entire Mediterranean world, that is all the Jewish people, and they're looking around, verse 5, and they see the temple, and they say, what an incredible building. And it was an incredible building. It was a tremendous accomplishment of architecture, that it was the place where God had rightfully wanted, wanted to be worshipped. You know, Herod really builds it up, that the stones, those that are still there, 30 feet in length, that it's adorned in gold and all the finery, that it's a magnificent structure. And every Jewish person knew that this was where God rightfully wanted to be worshipped that there was really hundreds of years, all the way back to the time of David, before David, that God wanted to be worshipped in a specific place on Mount Moriah, what we call Mount Zion. Say, so, well, why was the temple built where the temple was built, you know? That Mount Moriah is the place where Abraham binds Isaac. If you know the famous story in Genesis 22, that God asked Abraham to bind his son, and right before Abraham's about to sacrifice his own son, God intervenes that that happened on a place called Mount Moriah, an actual, an actual real mountain. And then uh, centuries later that David is commissioned, but ultimately it's fulfilled by his son Solomon, to build the place where God would be worshipped, 
through the priesthood and the sacrificial system on Mount Moriah. The Temple Mount is on Mount Moriah. And many Old Testament passages about the importance of Zion to the one true God. That's where he wanted to be worshipped. Now, just how grand was this structure at Jesus' time? We do have a contemporary account in Josephus, and he portrays it as just an unbelievable building. So I, I, I think it's safe to say that as the Jewish people come in from the Passover, from North Africa, you know, from Asia Minor, all the Roman provinces, they're coming in, this would have been the grandest building they'd ever seen. Uh, there's probably nothing comparable on the way of the journey. I mean, just an imposing edifice and hundreds of years of labor put into this structure. And what does Jesus say? Fellas, verse 6, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They had to think, oh my goodness, did we just hear what we think we heard? That he predicted the physical destruction of God's temple, as was the case when the Babylonians came in in the 6th century B.C.? How in the world would any humans actually even begin to displace such a building as this? And yet that's what Jesus says. And I think we know enough history to know that about 40 years after Jesus uttered these words, you know what happened. The Romans, as a response of a Jewish uprising, surround the city of Jerusalem, they march in, they desolate the population. Those who lived are scattered, and the temple is destroyed. Notice verses 20 to 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country ever enter. And in other words, exactly what Jesus said would happen is exactly what happened. Uh, today in Rome, there's a famous arch called the Arch of Titus. And on the Arch of Titus is the Roman emperor marching back the loot that they had plundered from the temple, marching it back to the coffers at Rome. The point being, Jesus says what had to be a shocking thing. The place where God told us that he wanted to be worshipped, the place that is an incredible structure, it's all going to be wiped out, the Jewish people actually won't live in Jerusalem anymore, and you need to know that. And it's exactly what happens. To this day, you go to Israel, and on the Temple Mount, there's a little bit of this temple left called the Western Wall, sometimes called the Wailing Wall, but on Mount Moriah is a mosque. That Jesus said that Jerusalem would be destroyed, that... Um, the Jews would be displaced, and that is the situation we have, that he predicted that. Now, why? I think that's our question to say why, and I think we get a lot of help from verse 22. It's a scary verse. So Jerusalem will be wiped out. The temple will be destroyed. Verse 22, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. What does that mean? That Jerusalem is destroyed because of God's just judgment. So what was the crime, if you will? What was the problem with the temple in Jerusalem? Now, if you've been with us, uh, you know, I know physically, but also mentally for some weeks, you know what the problem was, is that the temple, which was supposed to be a place of light, 
where the true God's radiance of his grace and mercy to say, hey, come on in, know the true God, repent. Uh, there's a living God, you can come and know him. And instead of the, shall we call it, the religious establishment, the scribes and the Pharisees, the priests, the people who are trying to communicate this message, instead of doing that, they are quite insular and legalistic and rigid. And instead of being a source of God's blessing to the nations, actually what had happened is that they became, again, kind of a, a detriment to God's kingdom initiative. So again, why is Jerusalem destroyed? What are the days of vengeance that God would not put up with this kind of rebellion? Now here's the pastoral, I think, point of comfort for us, that God will judge all kinds of religious corruption. That I know that some of you who are here that you've been disappointed in your churches in the past. You look around the news and think, well, gosh, another moral fallout, and you have, you know, what we would call church wounds. These are very real things that you see abuse scandals, and you're wondering, God, are you going to do, do you know about, are you going to do anything about this hypocrisy? Well, I think part of the Olivet Discourse is, yes, that God will execute perfect justice that we've seen time and time again that he reserves um, harsh judgment for people who proclaim loudly truth from the Bible or wherever but are not personally following it and in the end creating more damage than they do good for the sake of God. And here in the destruction of Jerusalem is a frightening example of just how serious God takes human rebellion. And I hope that that comes as a comfort that the flawed people doing their own thing, but God is true and right and good and that he will judge. God will judge religious corruption as he prophesied, Jesus prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and the whole order, so it came to pass. Now, as that came to pass, the second stream, if you will, not the immediate destruction of Jerusalem, but you'll see another thread here, and that thread is on a large cosmic scale that Jesus is talking about, not just Jerusalem being destroyed, but the end of this era. So first, these things, this is verse 9, must take place, but the end, there's the mention of the end of the world as we know it, or again in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus says. You think back to just a few weeks ago with the Sadducees. Remember the Sadducees posed the question about marriage in heaven, the levirate vow, the woman's married seven times, whose wife will she be in glory? And uh, Jesus says, well, in, in this age we get married. In that age we won't. So Jesus clearly here saying that heaven and earth as we know it will pass away. There's an age to come that's going to be different. It's on a cosmic scale, and you'll see the threads of this again, verse 10, something uh, this would be a great place to see this idea. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be tears and great signs from heaven. Now, all of a sudden, you've got something beyond the destruction of Jerusalem to the end of, of history here. Now, this thread, the language that you just saw, verses 10 and 11, uh, anybody that reads their Bible regularly say, well, this sounds very familiar because the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, talks about this a lot. Uh, there's a technical name called the day of the Lord. Uh, the day of the Lord is when God will judge 
all the people that are still on the face of the earth. It's a day that really no, nobody stands, that he comes. It's always accompanied with um, catastrophe, we might say. Uh, you've got a number of the cross-references there in your notes, but the Old Testament prophets say something like this. We know that there's going to be a day in the, of the Lord in the future, that God's going to sort everything out, and, and when that day comes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be accompanied by some really scary stuff. And Jesus here mixes the imagery of the day of the Lord, of judgment, with his coming again. Verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of the nations. You see how it's global in scope. Distress of the nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Right there, it said the imagery of the judgment of God in the day of the Lord accompanied by the second coming of Jesus. Here's the, the key point also in this passage, that Jesus will come again visibly, definitively, and authoritatively. And I hope that no one would leave Providence Church on this day, the 18th of February, 2024, being at all confused about that truth. Jesus says he'll come again. And he's going to sort it all out and consummate his kingdom. Now, a couple of warnings uh, with this, or I should say a couple of um, messages for the church on this matter of end times that Jesus predicts, verses 8 and 9, that a lot of people are going to talk about this in a way that they, they have no idea what they're talking about and we shouldn't be led astray. Now, you know this is true, both from the examples that I started the sermon with, but how many times we read that there's a little group of people who tend, you know, they say, well, we're the true church, and they predict a date for the end of the world, you know, and the date comes and it goes, and then they say, well, we, we missed our calculation, and they call that day the great disappointment, and then they do it again, and what does that do? It discredits anyone who professes to be a follower of Jesus because it communicates to the onlooking world these people have no idea what their Bible says. When what we should say is Jesus doesn't say, hey, sit around and try to predict the date of when I'm going to come again. No, what he says is don't listen to the other voices who talk about the end. Listen to my voice that I will come again and your job is to be right with me. And the end will come again both authoritatively, visibly, but also suddenly. In verse 34, we have that, that word suddenly, that Jesus will come, as First Thessalonians says, as a thief in the night. That it will be unexpected for, of course, those who are non-believers, very unexpected for them, uh, but for the church that we can know about these things ahead of time because they're plainly in God's word. Now, this is going to be a very fearful thing for many who don't know Jesus, as the language, you're using as many words in English as we can use to say that this is going to be very scary when the day of the Lord comes. But notice verse 28, because this is the comfort to the church. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. See, so that should be a wonderful note of comfort for the church. That when Jesus comes again, be a scary day of judgment... But for you, church, straighten up, lift your head because your king's coming and he's here to reconcile all things to himself. That the second coming of Jesus, while being an awesome prospect in the true sense of that word, for the church is a day of great joy 
which is why that old word, you know, Maranatha, if you hear that untranslated Aramaic word, I think, means come Lord Jesus. That come Lord Jesus has been a prayer of the church, a day of great hope, a day of reckoning, a day of reconciliation, and that's what Jesus is saying here, that there will be a time when the day of the Lord comes where justice will be perfectly executed and those who are mine who've entrusted Jesus as their Savior will be with their king and all things put right. So if you're not a Christian today, say every week, you know, th throughout the week, or maybe I meet you between services, you've not entrusted your life to Jesus or not in any kind of real way, I'm wondering what you think about all this. What, what do you think about doomsday? About the possibility of wide-scale destruction? from famine or plague or what you have at warfare, nuclear weapons. You say maybe God would use those things, but I would challenge you to say the real fear is not climate change or gain-of-function viruses, but I would challenge you the real fear that we're after here is the fear of the Lord. To say, am I right with God? Am I ready to meet God? Am I ready for perfect justice to be executed on my life? What, what plan do I have? Is there a place for comfort in this crazy world? Say, yes, there is. You're in the right place because here we talk about the grace of God and the person of Jesus. That God is merciful upon us weak and frail sinners, that even though we've turned our back on him and rebelled against him, that God and the provision of Jesus on the cross is calling you today to follow him and you can put your trust in him, that you need not be afraid and even the prospect of the end of this age would be one of great joy for you. You know, as I thought about this, when Jesus talking about the end, it reminded me of a story that when uh, Lincoln was on the campaign trail in 1859, he's up in Wisconsin, and Lincoln tells the story about a despot from the east, and the despot from the east calls all of his wise men together, and he says, I want you to etch on this big piece of stone, I want you to etch one eternal truth in unshakable, eternal truth. And so the wise men go away, and they etch out their statement, the one unshakable thing. And they show the eastern despot, and you know what they carve for the eternal truth? This too shall pass away. Say, <laughs> everything in this age will pass away. What endures is those who are committed to Jesus. And I'd feel very bad again if everyone, anyone, anyone left here today being at all confused about the fact that Jesus promises that he will come again, that there will be perfect justice executed, that every person has fallen short of the glory of God, but God in his kindness has made a way to be right with him in the person of Jesus, that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus, that you can surrender to him, that you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that you can live a life of real purpose and meaning, and again, have a place to be in the end. So Jesus, in this discourse, predicts the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That becomes true. That lends a lot of credibility to the fact that when he talks about the end of all of it, that too will be true. He'll come again. Now, how Jesus has not yet come, so how does the church live? Well, Jesus tells us about two potential threats and how we live in light of them. The first we could call external threats, verses 12 to 19. The world's going to persecute you, make fun of you, imprison you. They're not going to be happy with you. Some of you will be, you know, again, even killed, verse 16, and yet stay the course. 
So friends, for this passage, I think anything that would come from me that would sound at all like easy believism, just believe in Jesus and it's cost-free and you don't need to worry about it and you're going to be happy and wealthy and whatever. That's not what he says. As Ian said some moments ago, that God has entrusted with us to be stewards of this gospel. And while a lot of this stuff say, well, it's not true in Lorain County today, thank you, Lord. But it is true in a lot of places of the world. But as the church would face external threats, I think verse 13 sums up a lot of what we need to be focused on. This, what does Jesus say? This will be your opportunity to bear witness. That there's a great truth that pastors will speak about. It goes something like this. Bad times in the culture are great times for the church. Bad times in the culture, great time for the church. Why is that? Because for most of U.S. history, say we've all just been kind of floating down the stream of Christendom or whatever word you'd use, and now all of a sudden to say the church has not changed, the true church, right? We're following Jesus proclaiming the exclusivity of Christ, and things are getting a little less comfortable. But what does Jesus say? This is an opportunity for the church. I don't think there's been a better time to be a Christian in the history of America than there is right now. That so many people are asking questions, they're afraid. You see, in this election cycle, how many people will have misplaced fears They'll be more afraid of their candidates not being elected than where our eyes ought to be, which is on Jesus and his mission. And I pray that as the external pressures may come, that true Christ followers will seize verse 13 to say, this is our opportunity to bear witness to the grace of God and Jesus, to really love people, and to show that our fears are about him and not about anything earthly that is temporary. And notice verse 18. You say, well, how does Jesus say this? Did he get confused all of a sudden? Because he's talking about all the bad things that are going to happen to his followers, even to the point of death. But then verse 18, but not a hair of your head will perish. Not a hair on your head. In other words, he's saying, while you're going to potentially be mistreated and not liked and be unpopular or maybe worse and is worse and a lot of other, I have you in my hand. And your soul will not perish. And I know my children, and I will guide you home. So whatever comes your way in terms of an external threat, that I will guide you. May the church stay on mission, no matter what the external threat. Now more scary, verses 34 up through about 36. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. That is a much more serious and, I think, a a greater potential for a church like ours. It's not all of a sudden that we have tremendous external threats to not meet or teach the Bible, very little of that, but verse 34 is very real. Here we go again on the end times. Gosh, Jesus is tarried. It's not going to be today. And so we go on, business as usual. What a great word in my ESV, dissipation. Another word for wasting our time. Drunkenness, a cipher for pleasure. The cares of this life. How can I at all take the business of Jesus seriously when I've got my business to run? And the church is lulled to sleep when there's real eternity on the line. See, I think that's a greater danger for our church to be distracted or lazy 
or sleepy about this, say, may it not be that the Christian must, what's Jesus calling here for? He's calling for the church, verse 36, to stay awake at all times, pray, do the mission, stay on it, stay, stay active in God's work. Friends, no doubt a challenging passage today, but if we just take a big step back to say in this complicated discourse, what did Jesus do? He said, religious corruption and corruption of all kind is not lost on me, that there'll be a day of judgment as there was on Jerusalem. And what we take great rest in in terms of earthly institutions, well, they're very fragile. Also, to know that the day of the Lord will come, that we are all subject to the just judgment of God, but God in his kindness has made a way for all those who would believe in his son Jesus, and that in so doing, when Jesus comes to get to, again, that we are the ones who straighten up and lift our heads and greet our king with great joy. But since Christ has not yet come, what are we supposed to do? We're to stay on mission. We're to make disciples and love people and show them the grace of God, whether there be external threats for who knows what, or against any internal threats of saying, well, this isn't that serious. We don't need to be about God's work. May it not be. So I'm going to pray now. The uh, men will gather in the back as they prepare to serve communion. They'll come up uh, as I'm praying, and then I'll give instructions on, on the Lord's Supper. Gracious Father, thank you for this incredible sermon that Jesus delivers. Help us to put ourselves in the shoes of those disciples there who are marveling at a fantastic building. We might think of a, a building that was so impressive to us, and then Jesus saying, well, actually, that place is going to be toppled down. And more so to be the very place that you had wanted your name to go forth, but due to human rebellion that you, Lord, uh, exercised judgment and moved on to people who did do your work. So help us to be among those among those who call upon the name of the Lord and may from our church the radiance of your light go forth and so that others would come to know Jesus. Lord, help us of all people to appreciate the day of the Lord, that while we're frustrated to say, is anybody going to settle all this? Say yes, it will be settled. And to remind us that the church through all the centuries could pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, that that's the day of our redemption, as Jesus would say. So in the meantime, Lord, be it external threats or discomfort, that we would stay on mission and guard us, uh, may we be uh, guarded against any kind of sleepiness, dissipation, uh, pleasures of this world, the cares of our own business transactions. Help that not to cloud our primary mission, which is to represent King Jesus for the time that we have. Help us to talk about this topic that is everywhere in a way that's sensible and accurate for Christ's sake.